Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Before uh, Advent, we had just begun this letter in 1 Timothy, and we had looked at verses 1 through uh, to verse 7. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11. But I'm going to read for us from verse 3 just to give you the context. Um, but before I do, I just want to give a little bit of a word of caution this morning. Because for some of us, uh, this sermon is going to be harder to bear, um, as there will be some very sensitive things that will be addressed. Certain sins that some of us may be really struggling with, or wrestling with over, or outright engaging in. And I want you to be aware of that, um, because I think you need to hear the Word of God this morning. And I'm not standing up here this morning with a spirit of self-righteous judgment. I, too, am a sinner and in need of grace. But the Word of God is the Word of God, and it holds us all to account. And so I just wanted to say that before we actually dig into the passage. So let me read for us from verse 3 uh, to 11, but we'll be spending our time in verses 8 through 11 this morning. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy Um, who is giving oversight to the church in Ephesus. Verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And now verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, there are many times in your scripture where we come across scripture that is so encouraging to the soul, it causes us to rejoice. And then there are other times where we come across passages in your word that cause us to reflect, to see the weightiness of sin, and to see the fact that you care deeply about holiness and righteousness. And that you have given us your law to reveal that. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word now, that you, Lord, by your spirit, would truly soften our hearts to be receptive to what your word says. To receive it, to feed upon it, and to respond to it rightly. That if it requires us to repent here this morning, that it would do so in us. That it would cause us, Lord, to cling to Christ all the more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book, uh, Crime and Punishment, by the great Dostoevsky, the protagonist, Radya, is is portrayed as an educated man who has been captured by modern philosophies, believing that good and evil, morality are just human constructs in order to control people. Morality is just human stigmas, and that it's sometimes necessary to commit so-called evil acts for the greater good. And Radya decides to prove this to himself by murdering an old lady, the local pawnbroker. But after he commits the crime, he is overcome with guilt fear, and anxiety. He is completely restless, unable to find any peace. 
He has sought to prove that there is no good and evil, that there is no objective moral law, but his conscience tells him otherwise. He can't escape from the inner conviction that he has done something horrifyingly evil. In so many ways, Radya captures the way many in our society think today about morality. On November 20th at midnight, a gunman entered Club Q, a bar for the LGBTQ community, and opened fire, killing five individuals in Colorado Springs. It was a tragedy. No matter whether you agree with one's lifestyle choices, we as Christians can all grieve over such senseless evil. Joshua Thurman was a regular at this club, and he told CNN in an interview that the few minutes he was hiding in the dressing room felt like forever. He thought about his mother and all his loved ones and prayed he'd make it out alive so that he could make amends with anyone he may have wronged. Interesting. When the possibility of death was on his doorstep, what sprung to his mind was morality and his treatment of others. For some reason, the nearness of death forced him to think about his life and the moral wrongs he had committed against others. Now, I don't pretend to know Thurman's worldview, but based upon where he was that night, I'm guessing he doesn't share the moral beliefs of Christianity. And yet with death on his doorstep, the first thing that came to his mind was his need to reconcile with those he had wronged. It's fascinating. Because we live in a society that promotes moral relativism. That there is no such thing as real goodness or real evil. There is no such thing as a moral law that governs or directs the universe. Our moral sensibilities are stigmas created by humans to control one another. And we need to liberate ourselves from these so-called moral rules or principles to live free and happy lives. And yet when a crisis like the one that happened to Joshua Thurman takes place, he could not but help to think about his moral behavior and his need to make his wrongs Right. And here's why. You can do all you want to try to make this world amoral. You can do all you want to try to eradicate the moral impulse within you, but in the end, it's there pressing upon your conscience and your soul, reminding you that there is such a thing as good and evil, morality and immorality. That there is such a thing as moral acts and immoral acts. These moral principles are not merely human constructs, but are in fact more real and certain than our own existence. Christianity tells us that there is an eternal God who is good, and he has revealed his moral will through both natural revelation and his written revelation. God has given humanity his law, which is an extension of his character. And his law was given for the purpose of human flourishing. As we read in Deuteronomy 5, keep these commandments that you might live. But unfortunately, we human beings have disregarded God's law. Not only have we disregarded God's law, but throughout history, we have wrongly used God's law. And that's what Paul was dealing with in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. There were these false teachers who were desirous of being teachers of the law, but they were using the law wrongly. And when the law is used wrongly, it becomes destructive in its nature. Think of the Pharisees. They used the law wrongly, and they destroyed so many lives with it. And so Paul, in response to this problem, exhorts Timothy to address these false teachers and to tell them to smarten up, to be quiet. But he also, in this letter, articulates for us the right use of the law. And this is what we see in verses 8 to 11. 
And the first thing that Paul articulates is that the law of God is in fact good when used properly. These false teachers were damaging, destroying people with the law, but the law in and of itself is actually good. Look at what he says in verse 8. We know, we know that the law is good. How do we know this? Because it's from God. The law is a revelation of God's moral character, and therefore it's good. So any kind of notion that would suggest the law is bad is not remotely Christian. But Paul does provide a condition. He says we know that the law is good if, if one uses it lawfully. That is, if one uses it rightly or properly. You see, the problem with these false teachers was they didn't understand what the law was for. And because of this, they were causing disruption in the life of the church, breeding quarrels and controversies. See, it would be possible, due to these disruptions, to think that the law was somehow bad. But the law wasn't the problem. The problem was how they were using the law. It would be similar today when when people come to the conclusion that Christianity is inherently wrong due to some Christian teacher or church that has caused severe harm. They conclude there must be something wrong with Christianity when they ought to conclude that there's something wrong with the one who claims to represent Christianity. In other words, they ought not judge Christianity by that man's behavior. They ought to judge that man's behavior by Christianity. So the law is good. And we as Christians need to affirm this. God has given the law for the good of society and for our own spiritual good. And after Paul declares that the law is good, he then explains the purpose of the law of God, how it ought to be used. That's what we see in verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So the law has been given not for the just, that is not for the righteous, but for the lawless. What does Paul mean? Well, simply put, Laws in general are always given to stop or decrease bad behavior. When the state puts a law in place, they're never thinking of the righteous when they put that law in place. Like, um, like if everyone lived righteously, there wouldn't really be a need for any laws. So when Paul says the law is not laid down for the just, for the right but for the lawless, he's simply just making a, a general statement saying, laws are for unjust people. Now, some Christians take this to mean that Christians who are now justified and righteous before God no longer need the law whatsoever. But I think that's an overstatement. The Christian doesn't reject the law because of Christ, but rather seeks to live according to it, seeks to uphold it because of Christ. Paul says in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? That is, if we are justified by faith, do we then overthrow the law? And he says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 8.3-4, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God sent Jesus Christ to accomplish what the law could never do by condemning sin in his own flesh. And here's the reason why. So that the righteous requirements of the law might actually be fulfilled in us, those of us who no longer walk according to the flesh, but those who have the Spirit. Romans 13, 8 to 10, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, as followers of Jesus, we believe 
that we are not saved by law-keeping. We believe that we're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But after we are saved, we, by the Holy Spirit at work in us, seek to live our lives according to God's moral will, His moral law. And so Paul says here, the law has been given not for the just, and then he tells us who it's been given for. He lists several kinds of people and several kinds of behavior. Now, this list is not exhaustive, as Paul says at the end of verse 10, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, there are other kinds of sinners and sins, but here he lists specific ones. Also, I want you to see that this list follows loosely the pattern of the Ten Commandments. So let's go through the list together and see what each one is. So first he says the law has been given for the lawless and disobedient. Now I think these two words capture the totality of the list. It's a summary of the list. And then it's from here Paul lists specific things. So he says the law has been given for the lawless and disobedient. To be lawless isn't merely to be ignorant of the law. It's rather speaking of those who flout the law. They've rejected any moral standard. They have no constraint. A good description of the lawless is the statement made describing the time of the judges in Israel's history. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Is that not our culture today? Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. What's what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. And let's just live in happy harmony. See, in many ways, we live in a lawless society despite having many laws. Disobedient. That word disobedient carries with it the idea of being insubordinate. It's a disregard for any authority but one's own. And specifically here, it's being used in relation to God's law. People are insubordinate to God's moral law. So these two words, lawless and disobedient, I think capture or summarize the totality of this list, and now Paul gets specific, and I think there's a connection to the Ten Commandments, though it's not explicit. First, he provides two more sets that are in relation to the first half of the Ten Commandments, which addresses our relation to God. He says, for the ungodly and sinners. To be ungodly is to be godless. It's to be not like God. Not to give God the honor he deserves. The ungodly don't have an issue taking God's name in vain. The ungodly don't worship God. Whereas to be godly is partly to have a life that is oriented around the worship of God. Does that describe you? If someone looked at your life, would they say this person's life is all about the worship of God? So to be ungodly is to have no regard for the worship of God. To be ungodly is to be inherently an idolater. Now you can see how this relates to the first half of the Ten Commandments. Now with ungodly, he also says sinners. This word is being used more specifically than just general sinners. It carries with it the idea of willful disobedience, a disregard towards righteousness. After this, he then states the unholy and profane These two words capture the ideas of a a lack of piety and reverence. There's no regard for the sacred. So in a general sense, these first six pairs are describing our relation to God. And then from here, he addresses the second half of the law, which has to do primarily with our relation to other humans. And first, he says the law is for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Now, what does that remind you of? Well, you shall honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. But Paul here speaks about children striking their parents. Now, whether he means this only literally, we're not totally sure. He could be speaking literally, but also alluding to any kind of behavior that would demean or dishonor one's parents. And notice, there aren't conditions. It's not like Paul says... It's okay to dishonor your parents when they're not worthy of honor. Now, for some of us, that's hard to hear. 
Honoring our parents or one of our parents is very difficult for some of us because, to be frank, one of our parents or both of our parents are not worthy of honor. They haven't been a good, godly parent. So why ought I to honor them? And yet as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're called to still honor them. That doesn't mean to always obey them. There is a difference between honor and obey. If you are in your 20s or in your 30s and your parents still think you are called to obey them, you need to give them a rude awakening. You are called to honor them, but you are not always called to obey your parents. But as a Christian, one needs to think through how to honor his or her parents, even when they're not worthy of such honor. Next, he says, murderers, which is, of course, the breaking of the sixth commandment. And thankfully, as a society, for the most part, we still believe murder is wrong unless it's abortion or euthanasia. Then after murder, he lists the sexually immoral and those who practice homosexually, more literally, men who have sex with other men or women who also have sex with other women. Now, this, of course, alludes to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But here, when Paul says sexual immorality, it's more than just adultery. It's any kind of sexual activity that is contrary to God's moral design for sex. In other words, it's referring to any kind of sexual activity that is outside the context of covenant love between a husband and a wife. And then, of course, he also makes reference to men who practice homosexuality. Now, the meaning here is actually quite clear. But as Gerald Braid says, modern commentators have expended considerable energy and ingenuity in an attempt to excuse forms of sexual behavior that they either practice themselves or do not object to. The Greek word that Paul uses only occurs here and in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and it's a combination of male and bed or to lie. And it's most likely in reference to Leviticus 18.22. Remember, Paul was Jewish. He was immersed in the Jewish scriptures. He knows exactly what he's doing. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In other words, Paul is using the law to condemn the acts of sexual intercourse with the same sex, whether it be male or female. Now, we're going to come back to this in a little bit. Next, he says, enslavers. It was common in the ancient world to kidnap people and then to sell them as slaves. And Paul, without hesitation, outright condemns this as immoral and against God's moral law. In the ancient world, slavery was practiced across the board. Every society had slaves. It was an economic system to often pay off debts and also to provide some kind of social security security at times. But it wasn't ideal for anyone. Often domestic slaves would be castrated, which meant that many slaves couldn't have children, which means, think about this, the institution of slavery would have died with them. So if the institution was in decline, how would one keep up the institution? Well, you would have to find more slaves. And quite often, prisoners of war would become slaves, but quite often, slaves would be kidnapped. Just like in Africa, when tribes would kidnap other individuals from another tribe and then sell them to the Europeans. A horrible evil on everyone's part. Paul was already condemning this kind of practice in the ancient world. And people don't often realize this, but Paul's condemnation of, conde- of kidnapping people and enslaving them was, as Bray states, in its own way a form of abolitionism and would have been widely understood as such at the time. Now next he lists liars and perjurers or oath breakers. It's to be one who bears false witness against their neighbor. Our society is rampant with deception and falsehood. And then, of course, he says whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
anything that is contrary to the purity and claims of the Christian faith. You see, Paul says the law has been laid down for people who live like this. This is the purpose of the law. But what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? What does the law actually do in regards to lawlessness and disobedience? Well, Christians historically have spoken of the threefold purpose of God's law. The threefold purpose of God's law is this. One, it is to restrain evil. Okay? Secondly, it's to drive the sinner to Christ. And then thirdly, it's to guide the spirit-filled Christian in righteous living. So first, the law has been given to restrain evil. Our world is already full of so much evil. Right? Now imagine, imagine our world if there was no law by which the state could restrain and punish evil. You think it's full now? You see, part of the role of the state is to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil according to the moral law of God. Romans 13 speaks of this. This is why when the state becomes less and less inclined to uphold God's moral law, there will be an increase in immorality which will ultimately lead to a society's own destruction. And to be frank, I think we are seeing that at work today. So the law has been given to restrain evil. Secondly, the law has been given to drive the sinner to Christ for forgiveness and deliverance. The law of God is meant to shut each of us up and make us realize that we are guilty and helpless before a holy God because each of us have broken God's law. The law brings the knowledge of sin in our lives. It exposes our true nature and who we truly are. We are sinners, godless, disobedient rebels against God's moral law. As C.S. Lewis says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvements. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And the law exposes us exposes us to our own rebellion and wickedness before God. As Paul says in Romans 3, 19-20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, listen to this, every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no, man, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God shuts us up. It makes us realize that we are not as good as we think we are. It makes us accountable to God. It brings knowledge of our sin. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people who after I have asked them if they think they're a good person, they have confidently responded with, yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm a good person. And then I have walked them through the law of God, and they very quickly discover, according to God's standards, they're not so good. You see, the law brings the knowledge of sin, and it humbles us to realize that before Almighty God, we are guilty and condemned for our lawlessness. And that's why the law is meant to drive sinners to Christ. That is, it's meant to cause the sinner to look to Christ for deliverance and forgiveness because he will not find deliverance in his own goodness. It's why Luther said, it, that is the law, is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings for it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened and worn down and so may long for the grace and for the blessed offspring, Jesus Christ. You see, if you think you're a decent person, a morally upright person, you have not faced the law of God and allowed God to examine you according to his standards. Try, I dare you to try to take the commandments of God to take 
the commandments of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, I dare you to try to live as best you can according to those commandments. The more you try to be good, the more you realize how not good you are. See, if you're truly honest with yourself and you allow the law of God to search your soul, you would find that you are a sinner guilty before a holy God and worthy of condemnation. And the only hope for you is not try harder. No, no, the only hope for you is to fall on your knees and to place yourself into the hands of a merciful God who has provided Jesus as an offering for sin on your behalf when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. The best way to think about it is like this. You're on a plane and you're going down. You're the only one on the plane. And no matter how hard you try, there is nothing you can do to keep this plane from crashing. It is going to crash. There is only one thing you can do to save your life, and that is put on that parachute in order for you to escape the destruction that is seconds away. And that parachute is Jesus Christ. Each of us, because of sin, is like a plane heading towards its destruction. And the only way to be rescued is to cling to Christ, the parachute, for our deliverance. And what you will discover is, in fact, he has been clinging to you. And so this morning, will you cling to Jesus for your salvation and deliverance? So the law has been given, one, to restrain evil. Two, it's been laid down for sinners so that sinners might turn to Christ for deliverance and forgiveness. And thirdly, the law has been given to guide the spirit-filled Christian in righteous living, which I've already alluded to earlier, that by the spirit of God, we seek to uphold the law. You see, the law reveals the way of righteousness. And as Christians saved by the blood of Christ, we're devoted and committed to walking in the ways of righteousness. Calvin articulated with emphasis the role the law had among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. The law is the best instrument both to teach us the Lord's will and to urge us to do it. As he further says, for by frequent meditation upon it, believers will be aroused to obedience, be strengthened in it, and be drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. This is the purpose of the law. This is how God intended for the law to be used. But these false teachers in Ephesus were speculating about the law and causing controversy and quarreling. And Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that the law of God is good when it's used right. Now before I go on any further, I think it's important for me to tackle some of the more controversial sins of our day that Paul lists in this passage. Many people today who aren't even Christians would agree with the Apostle Paul that lying, enslaving, murder, and striking one's parents is wrong. But many today would be in utter opposition to Paul's condemnation of sexual immorality and homosexual sex. And I think it's important to address this, not because I want to focus in on this, or because I think this is the worst kind of sin. No, no, there are far greater sins. But it's important for me to address because it's it's the one that's being challenged by our culture and quite frankly from many professing Christians. And so we need to be clear what the Bible actually says because there are eternal consequences to this. So what I want to do is I want to take a wide lens and then zoom in a little bit. I want to take a wide lens and just think about morality and ethics in general. And then I want to look at the scripture itself, the the, the exegetical passage itself, and reflect on what is Paul actually saying. So why does our culture seem to think that all forms of sexual behavior are okay so long as there is consent, but other behaviors and practices are immoral? So for example, if you're engaged in fighting poverty, and injustice, and many other social ills. You're seen as someone, according to our culture, who is morally upright 
regardless of whether or not you're engaging in all kinds of so-called casual sex, so long as it's consensual. Why is this? Well, it's partly the way our culture understands morality. We tend to think that our society is dominated by moral relativism, but that's not really accurate. What we're ultimately controlled by, ethically speaking, is a consequentialist ethic, meaning people determine whether or not something is morally good or wrong based upon the consequences of the action. So if this act causes harm, then it's immoral. But if it doesn't cause any harm, then it's morally acceptable. So the act itself has no intrinsic moral value. It's only the result of the action that determines whether the action should be regarded as immoral. So, for example, you hear this all the time when it comes to people engaging in consensual sexual activity outside of covenant marriage. What do they say all the time? What's wrong with it? We're not harming anyone. Right? They're thinking about the consequence. It can't be immoral if it's not harming anyone. Now, there's a lot of assumptions in that kind of statement. I mean, how do you actually know that you're not harming anyone? The only way you can know for sure is if you have access to the inner soul of a person. And a a dear brother in the Lord who I met probably over eight years ago shared his story while we were at our church in Ottawa. He was one of the leading drag queen performers in the United States. He was famous in the LGBTQ community. He had a specific performance in which he would mock the crucifixion of Jesus. But I remember him sharing that if you saw him in public, you would have thought he was the happiest person on earth. He was a celebrity in the LGBT community. He he was praised. But he shares that behind closed doors when he was home alone, he said he was overwhelmed with anguish and sorrow with the way he was living. He knew deep down that it was wrong and it was destroying his soul. Yet solely from the outside, one would have thought, he's not harming anyone. But what one couldn't know is the destruction that he was doing to his own soul. You see, sometimes the harm that results from an action can be immediate. I pull a trigger, the bullet hits you in the head, and now you're dead. It's an immediate consequence of the action. But a lot of times, the harm that results from an action is delayed. This was the argument that occurred when Playboy came onto the scene. Many Christians were saying that it was immoral, it was wrong. And our culture was saying, there's nothing wrong with pornography, it's not harming anyone. But they were making that claim on the assumption that harm is always immediate. 60 years later, And even secularists, atheists, feminists, doctors, psychologists are speaking out against the harm that pornography is producing in our society, especially upon young men and how they relate to the opposite sex. The harm was delayed. But this is how our society in general approaches ethics. If two men love each other and want to sleep together, what's wrong with that? They're not harming anyone. Behind that statement is an assumption that one can know whether or not harm is truly being done, and behind such a statement is the assumption that sexual acts are amoral. There are no such thing as moral and immoral sexual acts. They are just acts. And what determines whether the act is moral or immoral, is whether consent has taken place or some kind of harm. And as Christians, we have to be able to respond to that. We have to be able to give a biblical, ethical response to that. For example, we also need to be able to give an ethical response and and to be able to explain why adultery is evil and so is polyamorous relationships. 
You see, polyamorous relationships are when you have committed sexual relationships with more than one person, but it's also consensual. See, our culture would say that's permissible because it's consensual. You have three or four people who have agreed to this. Whereas adultery is immoral because it's an act of betrayal and it harms someone. And as Christians, if we don't have any way to demonstrate that both are immoral, then we'll simply play to their game. You see, too many of us think in consequentialist categories when it comes to wrong and right. And as Christians, we can't play that game. We don't determine what is good and evil based upon the consequences. Now, the consequences of an action may help inform us on whether such an act is moral or immoral. Because morality, true objective morality, is for the purpose of human flourishing, which means when an action produces the opposite of human flourishing, it's probably a good sign that the action is immoral. But understand, I'm not saying that the action is immoral because of the consequence. I'm saying the action itself is inherently immoral, and the result affirms such a claim. Christianity doesn't hold to a consequentialist ethic. Christianity claims there are immoral and moral acts, and that includes in regards to sexual activity. There are such things as objective moral goodness and objective evil, and this is determined by God's character, which is also revealed to us in natural revelation and his written revelation. And so when we say the Bible condemns homosexual behavior. I want to stop there and say that. I am not remotely here focusing about identity. The New Testament does not focus on identity when it comes to sexual acts. We have desires and we either act upon them or we don't. The Bible condemns sexual acts. So when the Bible condemns homosexual behavior in the same way it condemns adultery or fornication, as Christians, we are saying that God has declared these things to be objectively immoral, regardless of the consequences. So that's the wide lens. I wanted us to think about ethics and moral theology. Now I want us to zoom into the text itself. So many people, even professing Christians today, will argue that homosexual activity is permissible so long as it's consensual and it's within a committed relationship. They will argue that what Paul is condemning here in 1 Timothy is a certain kind of homosexual relationship, not the kind of our modern culture that encourages monogamous homosexual relationships. Now here's the problem with this claim. For one, Paul isn't focusing on certain kinds of relationships, but rather specific acts. He is in every instance condemning the act of a man lying with another man regardless of the relationship between those men. It's the act itself that is condemned regardless of the relationship. The act itself, according to the Apostle Paul, is immoral in the eyes of God. It is, as he says in Romans 1, contrary to nature. Another argument that is often made is that homosexual behavior is only addressed six times in the Bible total, and therefore it's, it's not all that important in God's eyes. So we can simply agree to disagree on this. In other words, it's not central in the Scripture. It's, it's, it's only said six times. So, you know, we can, we can just agree to disagree, and God has changed his mind on this. And How often something is repeated in the Scriptures does not determine the seriousness of it. It's what God says about it that determines it. Let me, let me shock you a little bit. I'm going to take that same logic, okay? It's only condemned six times in the Bible, homosexuality, and so, you know, it's not that important in the eyes of God. So let me shock you a little bit because I'm going to use that same logic and apply it to other things. For example, the Bible only condemns bestiality four times. Therefore, it's not all that important in the eyes of God whether a man participates in such actions. I don't think anyone would agree with that. 
Or another argument they'll make to get around Paul is that the food laws in Leviticus are no longer binding today, and the same is true in regards to homosexual activity. But this is a categorical error. What they never do is explain why homosexual activity is now permissible, but all the other sexual activity that's condemned in Leviticus is still forbidden. In other words, look at the other commands regarding sexual ethics in the Old Testament, and if God has not changed his mind on those other commands, why do you think he's changed his mind on homosexual activity today, despite the fact that the New Testament condemns it as well? Like, hear me on this, and I'm not trying to be, you know, in, like, Oh, extreme here. I think this is logic, okay? Like, if God has changed his mind on homosexual activity, then who's to say he hasn't changed his mind on bestiality, adultery, polygamy, incest, and dare I even say, pedophilia? What's the biblical grounds to continue condemning those things while saying that God is now allowing homosexual activity? Lastly, here in 1 Timothy, Paul is not addressing homosexuality alone, but within a list of other moral, immoral behaviors. And one has to ask, if Paul is wrong here about homosexuality, why should we trust him in regards to enslavers, liars, or those who strike their parents? Why are those still condemned in these lists that Paul lists, but homosexuality is different now? Louis Crompton, a gay man and a pioneer in queer studies, his massive book, Homosexuality and Civilization, basically suggests, he's not a Christian, okay? He, he outright rejects the Bible, but he says this. He basically suggests that any person who tries to make it seem like the Bible is somehow okay with certain kinds of homosexual behavior is basically not honest with the biblical text. He says this. Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage in Romans 1 as condemning not homosexual, homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed as, at bona fide homosexuals and committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew or early Christian. You see, what is happening in our day is nothing new. The questioning of Paul's condemnation of certain sexual behaviors, it's nothing new. It's just manifested in a different way today. But it's the same underlying issue that was present in Genesis 3 when the serpent spoke with Eve. What was the context? God gave them a command, made it explicitly clear. And what did Satan do? Did God really say did god really say today god didn't really condemn all forms of homosexual behavior and and all forms of sexual immorality just some just the ones that are harmful just the ones that that prey on the vulnerable the apostle paul was bound by his time he didn't have an understanding of committed homosexual relationships in other words, explanation after explanation for why Paul ultimately wasn't speaking on behalf of God in those specific passages. And fundamentally, it always comes back to, did God really say? Are these words truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, or can they be disregarded as man-made? And so let me say this forthrightly, so that before God, no one will be able to say to God, Peter watered down God's word. If you think you can engage in homosexual activity or any other sexual activity that is contrary to God's will and believe that God affirms your choices, please hear me. You are in outright rebellion against God's moral will. And you are misrepresenting what he has taught. And if you continue down this path, eternal destruction awaits you. 
the Apostle Paul said explicitly in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me say this as well. I know most likely some of us here today are struggling with our sexuality. In fact, all of us are probably in some capacity struggling with our sexuality. But for those of us who are struggling with our sexuality in regards to same-sex attraction, please hear me when I say this. There are two paths before you. There is the path that says to you, Follow your desires and fulfill those desires. It's what's best for you. Be true to yourself. The other path is follow God's design, trusting that he actually knows what's best for you, though it will be hard and painful. For Jesus said the narrow way is hard. That leads to life. But just like any other disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus means to submit our desires to his will. And though the world will tell you that you're crazy, God will smile upon you. And also hear me on this. You do not need to wrestle with this struggle alone. Part of what it means for us to be the church is for us to acknowledge that we are all sexually broken and we need each other to walk this path of holiness. When I was a younger man, if I had kept my struggles with pornography completely secret, I would never have been able to grow in my obedience in regards to my sexuality. And in the same way, we as a church want to be the kind of church that accepts and allows for people who are struggling with their sexuality to be able to express that and to have people come around and support them and walk with them through this pilgrim journey. See, if we as a church can't accept the sexually broken and allow for sexually broken to share, allow for the sexually broken to share that brokenness, then what's the point of us being the church of Jesus Christ? We need to be a hospital for sinners. And so don't be afraid to reach out. In fact, I invite you to come speak with me if this is something that you are struggling with deeply or speak to a brother or sister in the church that you trust and love. So we've seen the law is good. It's been given for the lawless. We've seen the threefold purpose of the law to restrain evil, to lead the sinner to Christ, to guide the spirit-filled Christian in righteous living. The last thing I want us to see is that the law of God is in harmony or accords with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has just articulated that the law has been laid down for the lawless and disobedient disobedient, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That is, whatever else is in opposition both to sound theological and ethical teaching according to the scriptures. The law aligns itself against anything, anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. And then Paul adds this line in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of of the blessed God in accordance. The law doesn't contradict the gospel, but it accords with it. The law affirms the moral standards of the gospel and the gospel affirms the moral standards of the law. They do not contradict one another, no, nor are they opposed to each other. The law and the gospel are only in opposition when one believes he can be justified by the law. But the law is meant to be the instrument of God that leads us to the gospel and the high calling of the gospel. As John Stott says, the moral standards of the gospel do not differ from the moral standards of the law. To be sure, the law is powerless to save us and we have been released from the law's condemnation so that we are no longer under it in that sense. But God sent his son to die for us and now puts his spirit within us in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be filled in us. So any notion that the law of God contradicts or stands in opposition to the gospel of God should be disregarded. The law is good for it reveals God's moral will for his image bearers. It's meant to lead us to the gospel of Jesus Christ for through the law we realize that as fallen image bearers we cannot actually fulfill the law. We need a savior who can rescue us from the condemnation of the law. 
But when he rescues us and gives us his Holy Spirit, Jesus sends us back, so to speak, to live according to his moral law. It's similar to what Josh made mention of in John 1, where John tells us that the law came through Moses, but grace upon grace has come through Jesus Christ. Now, John's not saying that the law and the old covenant wasn't of grace. No, it was all of grace. The law was an act of grace by the hand of God. When did God give Israel the law? He gave it to them after he saved them. Not before. But the law, though it was a gracious gift from God, it had no power to save them spiritually. The power of the law was in revealing the lostness of man so that mankind would flee to the one whom the law pointed as their deliverer. Which means this. Every sin that is listed here is not just contrary to the law, but also the gospel. And that's important because many claim today that Jesus has changed or undermined the moral demands of the law. In other words, Jesus is often far more concerned about love and acceptance and and inclusivity than he is about holiness and righteousness. That's just not true. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now to end off, it's important we think about what this gospel is all about. Because Paul mentions that the law is in accordance with this gospel. Now this gospel means good news, but notice what this good news is ultimately about. It is the gospel or the good news of the glory of the blessed God. That is, this gospel, this good news, reveals the glory or the splendor of this blessed God. Through the gospel, we are given insight into the manifold perfections of God and his works. The gospel enables us to see and know the splendor of God. But also notice, Paul describes God as the blessed God. The gospel comes from the God who is supremely blessed. Interesting. Not blessed because we've blessed him. No, no. Blessed within himself as being God. Now that word blessed is the Greek word makarios, which is extremely difficult to translate in English. It's the same word, remember, used in the Beatitudes. It can be translated as blessed, happy, or even flourishing. There is no perfect English equivalent, but it's important to see that what Paul is suggesting is that God contains all happiness or joy in himself, and he bestows that joy upon men. This is why in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the reward Jesus gives to those who were wise with the wealth entrusted to them is come and share in your master's joy. In other words, the God who has given the law is not some grumpy, enraged God who wants to oppress people with laws. No, no. He's the God of joy who has given us His law because His law is meant for our flourishing and the gospel is the means by which we are able to live this flourishing life that aligns with God's moral will. But how has this gospel revealed the glory or the splendor of this blessed God? Well, in many ways. But I want to draw our attention to one area in which the gospel has made known the glory of this God. And that is this. The gospel has revealed the power of God in transforming sinners into saints. Or transforming the unrighteous into righteousness. I had read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6 demonstrating how those who live lawlessly will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the passage doesn't end in condemnation. It ends in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, neither, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the law. The law tells us that anyone who lives like this will not inherit God's kingdom. But Paul then articulates the gospel in the next verse. And such were some of you. Past tense. You were once like that. But now you've been washed. You were sanctified. That is made holy. You were justified. Declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. The gospel has revealed 
the glory of God by revealing the transforming power of God in the lives of sinners. And Paul tells us that he was entrusted with this gospel to bring to a lost world, to to bring it to a lost world in need of redemption and God's saving power. And this very day, some of you could, could identify with these words, but such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, and justified through Jesus Christ. If only, if only you would but humble yourself and bow your knee to Jesus, believing that he alone can save you from your law-breaking sinfulness. May this be the day in which you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and know the salvation of God. Let's pray. Father, we are all lawbreakers. We all in in and of ourselves are guilty before you. And this is why we simply thank you for Jesus. Because of him, our sins have been washed away. Because of him, our sins are forgiven. Because of him, we have been declared righteous before you. Because of him, we have not only been declared righteous, but we have been called sons and daughters of you. We thank you for this salvation in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us out of love for you to live according to your ways, to pursue the righteousness that you desire for your children to live by. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.